I think that's a cool video. It, one of the things that keeps coming up is the resurrection changes everything. I, I think that's why we're here today. In fact, this is really one of the cool days of the church here, to be honest. There's over a billion people all the way across the world that are celebrating Easter in churches today. A billion people, that's just nuts. And you start asking the question, because obviously this is a, a, an event of monumental proportions in our world today. Still, after all these years. And one of the questions that comes up is why? I mean, what has kept it so popular over all this time? What has caused it to even cause traffic issues on a Sunday morning in Phoenix, Arizona in the year 2013? I mean, it doesn't even make any sense. Why is it still so popular? And, and I think even though in certain corridors of our society today they don't like the fact that this is the reason, but the reason is because of the resurrection of Jesus, right? Because Jesus rose from the dead and because of that, it's changed everything. You know, Gallup, George Gallup once did this poll a few years back and it said that 84% of people who never go to church still believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I find that just amazing. That, that they believe it's a historical fact, that it wasn't done in secret. You read through the, the history books and you read through scripture and you see that all of the city of Jerusalem knew that he had risen from the dead, that it wasn't hidden from anybody. That it's a historical fact. If CNN had been around at that time, because it was a huge news event, they would have been there 24-7 coverage asking the, the different guys at the scene, the soldiers, hey, so you said he fell asleep. Well, that doesn't seem good. What do you think your boss is going to say? And then they get all nervous. This kind of contradicts one of the stories we heard over here. You say there was an angel. Really, how many angels were there? And they said the, the, the stone rolled away. They'd just be going nuts. It'd be a, something that would be covered for weeks on end, trying to corroborate the different stories that they were hearing, trying to find the truth. It's just an incredible event. There's also at least 15 different historical references to Jesus meeting with people after he rose. One time he cooked breakfast for some people. Another time he hosted over 500 people and talked with them. The reality is that a ton of people saw him after he rose from the dead. And so you start asking the question, well, if that's all really true, what does that mean for me today? And what I want to do this morning is I want to give you, I don't know, three truths about Easter. And then I want to give you three truths about what that means for you and me. Because the fact that we celebrate this is, is a cool thing. But the reason why we celebrate it is the real reason why we're here. And one of the real reasons why this is such a special deal is because of this. Because it's stated once and for all that Jesus is who he said he was. See, in John 11, verse 25, Jesus said this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me lives even though he dies. And to be honest, you listen to that, and Jesus truly made some outrageous claims while he was on this earth. He said things like, I'm God, and I'm perfect, and I'm the only way to heaven, and I'm the Savior of the world. And he says all kinds of stuff like that, which is interesting to me, right? Because there's a lot of people today that, even though he said all those things, want to make him out to be this great teacher, this good teacher. But just think about just that, just for a moment. I could go out into North Phoenix, I guess, and teach a bunch of good moral truths, and people might even say, Mike, you're a great teacher. But if I also said that I was God, nobody would be saying that anymore. They'd be saying, you need to be fitted for something, and we want to send you to a special place. But the same is true with Jesus, isn't it? It's, Jesus either is or was who he said he was, or he's one of the biggest liars in the history of the world. He said, I am God. He said, I am the way. And then he said, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to prove that I am who I say I am. One day Jesus was clearing out the money changers that were in the temple. The temple in those days had become kind of like a flea market on some days as people were turning in, or turning in or money to get cash so they could go and sacrifice and have dinner. They turned the, 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 kind of the temple of the Lord into just kind of this flea market kind of place. And he went in and he drove all these people out and they said, what... 
where do you get the authority to do this kind of thing? Why do you have a right to do this? And he says, because I'm God. And they said, well, prove it. He says, I will. He says, after you kill me, I'm going to rise. And three days later, I'm going to come back and, and we'll have this conversation, so to speak, right? Actually, it says, after you kill me, I'm going to come back to life three days later. He then claims to be God again. And then he backed it up when he rose from the dead. His resurrection backed up his claim that he was who he said he was. In John 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the Father except by means of me, which again is one of those really strong statements that he made. But he says, I am the way. I'm not one of the ways. I'm not a good way. I'm not, I'm not just a way that you can pick on a calendar or pick on a, a certain day to say this is good enough. He says, no, I am the only way. And so when people say always lead, always lead to the same place or always lead to heaven, it's just stupid because that's not what Jesus said at all. It's like saying I can dial any phone number and get my house. You ever try to just kind of randomly go like this and ever ring at your house? No, there's only one number that will ever reach my house. Jesus is saying that. He says, I am the only way. He then goes on and says, I am the truth. And that just means any other way is not the truth if he's right. He claimed to be God. He says, no one can get to the Father except through me. You know, even if you don't believe that he is who he says he was, what's interesting about Jesus is that we still use him as a reference point every single day of our lives. Every time we sign a check, every time you put a date on a contract, every time you put a little appointment into your little blue book or whatever it is for your calendar, we're putting down 2013 from what? From when Jesus came. See, God sent Jesus into the world so that we would know what he was like. He sent us a Savior because he knew that we couldn't do it by ourselves. And so every time we write that 2013, it's in reference to Jesus Christ. See, he split history into A.D. and B.C., even though we don't use those terms anymore because in school they're teaching current era, or C.E. and B.C.E., before current era, because I guess we don't like Jesus as the reference point to anything. But every time we write a date, that's our reference point because he is, he was who he said he was. He goes on and says this. It also, it shows that Jesus had the power that he claimed to have. He said this, All power on earth and in heaven is given to me. And because he was God, he could do anything that God can do, right? In verse, or John verse 10, verse 18, he says this, Nobody takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down, and I also have the power to take it up again. So he's just saying, no force can keep me in the tomb. But they tried, didn't they? I mean, you go through scripture, you, the Romans killed him. You would have thought that would have been enough. They put him in a tomb. They put a big stone in front of the tomb in case he wanted to get away. Then they sealed it with a Roman seal saying, don't move this stone. So that should have been enough for almost anybody. It was a death penalty to then remove the stone. And then they posted a 24-hour guard, all to keep him in there because the, the leaders of that day, of the Sanhedrin, remembered what the disciples didn't. That Jesus said he would rise three days later. And they wanted to make sure there was no way that could ever happen. But they were just trying to prevent the inevitable. For Jesus had all the power in the world. And so he conquered the grave, he rolled away the stone, and he lives today. In other words, he had the power that he said he had. And then he goes on and says that Jesus did, too, what he promised that he would do beforehand. In Mark 10, verse 34, it says, They will mock, and they will flog, and they will kill me. But after three days, I will come back to life. The reality was is that the cross was not a surprise for Jesus. It, what's even more amazing about this statement is he said it before he went in on Palm Sunday. Remember Palm Sunday? It was just last week, right? They go in with 
people like waving palm branches, saying, Hosanna to the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They thought this Jesus was going to be king. Before all that happened, he said this, they will mock and they will flog and they will kill me, but after three days it will come back to life. It's no wonder his disciples didn't get it. They got lost in the moment. But it was all part of God's plan. When you think about it, there's a little humor in the Easter story. Just imagine. Imagine if you had been one of the guys that killed Jesus. Right? You were there on that day with, or that early morning when they were coming up with excuses to put Jesus away. You heard the lies and you even had been with Jesus from time to time and so you knew they were lies, but anything that would stick they were trying to find. Finally, Jesus said he was the Son of God, so they said, wait, we can now crucify him. They took him to Pilate and so you went too. Early in that morning, as soon as Pilate woke up, he held court and they said, we want to crucify this Jesus. And you said, crucify him, crucify him, along with everybody else in the crowd. And then you went and you watched him be crucified. You watched him string him up on the cross. Maybe even seed in the floggings earlier that day. I don't know, but you were there. You heard people ridicule him. Maybe you even taunted them as well. But the humor in the story is that he rose three days later and he was walking around Jerusalem. And what would you say if you ran into him? It starts with O and then you can fill in the next sentence, right? <laughs> the angel said, don't be frightened. I know you're looking for Jesus who is crucified. He's come back to life again, just as he said he would. In other words, he did what he promised. He, he always does. For when God makes a promise, the one thing that we can know is that we can count on it. And that's what it means. Because Jesus did what he said he would do, and he has the power that he said he had, and he keeps the promises that he always, that he's made, we can recognize that that's part of the difference that the resurrection makes. But you could still sit there and you go, okay, well, that's interesting stuff about Jesus. We have an amazing God. We get that. But what does it mean for me in Phoenix, Arizona, USA, 2013? Well, if you believe that he was who he said he was and that he has the power to do all things, he has the power of God, and that he always keeps his promises, then what this means is that your past can be, can be forgiven. And to be honest, that's why they call it good news. It's an amazing gift that he gives that, to recognize that all of our past stuff don't ask, doesn't have to keep us in bondage anymore. I can't tell, me, tell you how many people I talk to that are going along fine and all of a sudden they get a remembrance and all of a sudden it tweaks them. They drive down into depression for a period of days or, or, or hours. There's ways of learning and ways of behavior that we've learned in the past that because of the pain we just can't disassociate, we can't get rid of, and so we continue to complicate our future, to make our future so much harder because we can't let go of the past. We can't hear the words forgiven, and even if we hear them, it's hard for us to trust them. And yet God says, you're forgiven. It's an amazing thing. And, and I, you know, I think sometimes it's like, you know, maybe you've gotten halfway through a project, maybe it's painting your house or something like that, and you've wanted to start over, you know. I, any perfectionist in this room know what I'm talking about, right? It's just not quite right. And I think a lot of people live their lives that way too, right? Maybe not our whole lives do we want to live over, but... We want to relive this one part that seemed to have messed up so much stuff, has hurt so many different people. We certainly want to relive this part. We, we want to do over on this other part over here, especially because it keeps coming back to us, even though it was 20 years ago. There's parts of our life always that we want to do over. Why? Because we all have regrets. We all have things that we wish we wouldn't have done, things that we've said that we wish we wouldn't have said, thoughts that we've had that and we just wish we wouldn't have thought. I had a, a pastor friend of mine receive this letter uh, the earlier this week, and he was nice enough to share it with me. But it, it reads this way, and I, I just share it with you because I guess the tragedy is I know so many people like this. 
The author writes, I'm 31 years old and divorced, though I fought the divorce bitterly. I feel badly. I have no hope for my future. Often I go home and cry, but there's no one holding me when I cry. Nobody cares. Nobody changes. Nothing changes. And I continue to fail. I'm stressed out emotionally, and I feel as if I'm on the verge of collapse. Something's just very wrong. But I, I feel so hurt and embittered that I can scarcely react or relate to others anymore. I feel as if I'm going to have to sit out or, or sit in the, the penalty box for the rest of my life. Again, I know a ton of people like that. They've done one thing in the past, or one thing didn't go right in the past, and they let it dictate every step of their future, whether it be a regret or a guilt or maybe a relationship that just didn't go right. They're letting it mess up all their future relationships, which is just dumb. They say, I guess I'll have to live with this for the rest of my life. This is just part of my new MO, I guess. And they're running around with all this baggage emotional garbage, trying to live life, and they're wondering why they're always depressed, why things just aren't going the way they want it to. Which again is why this is such good news. In Colossians 3.14, Paul writes these words. He says this, He has forgiven all our sins and canceled every record of the debt we owed. Christ has done away with it by nailing it to the cross. See, it's part of God's pardoning program. You know how governors pardon and presidents pardon. God pardons too. He's pardoned us for all the junk and all the sin and all the horrible stuff that we've done. It's an amazing thing. He nailed it to the cross. He says, once and for all, Jesus paid my guilt. You read that over and over. It just means I don't have to pay for it anymore. He was hung up on the cross for all my hang-ups. He was nailed to the cross so I didn't have to nail myself to the cross. He wants to forgive your past. And that's good news. It's amazing news if you'll trust it. And even if there was no such thing as heaven and hell, and there is, I just think it would be worth becoming a Christian just so that you could have that past erased, that guilt gone. So instead of looking back as you're walking through life, you could just look ahead and see what it is that God wants to do next. It's an amazing gift because Jesus was who he said he was. Our sins can be forgiven. Also, there's another thing. He talks about our present too, and he says our present problems can be managed. And I say that to be honest because a lot of life is just unmanageable, isn't it? Especially if you're a parent. I was reading this earlier this week. It's about a guy named Charlie Shedd. He's an author. And he tells a story on himself. And he writes this. Uh, before, he, before we had kids, I used to travel around the country teaching a lecture I called The Ten Commandments for Raising Perfect Kids. This was before I had kids, he writes. After he and Martha had lost the, or had ha, ha, after he and Martha had their first child, he changed it to Ten Hints for Parents. After their second child, he relabeled the lecture, A Few Tentative Suggestions for Fellow Strugglers. <laughs> he said, After the arrival of my third child, I just gave up speaking on the topic altogether, right? <laughs> but maturity is when you figure out that you don't have it all figured out. And maturity is when you realize that you can't manage all that life is going to send you 100% of the time. But there is someone who can, and that's God. So even when life gets so it's making waves over your head where you just don't seem to be able to control any of it and just some of the flags that let us know we're doing this is we're worrying incessantly, we're not sleeping well because we're thinking about it, we're stressing, we have anxiety, all those are little flags telling us we're trying to control the uncontrollable. The amazing gift in this is that Jesus says, because I rose from the dead, I can help you manage the unmanageable. I can help bring control to the uncontrollable. See, that's good news too. And while I can't control everything that's going to happen in the future... 
God can. And while I don't know what's going to happen in the future, and especially today as you look at everything that's going on, whether it's the economy, who knows what's going to happen in the economy in the next one, five, ten years. None of us do. You look at North Korea making threats to bomb us. You look at all these different things going on in our country, and you think, ah, it's hard to know what's going to come next. I think there maybe was a time where we kind of had a clue, but now it's not that way. But God says, even though you don't have a clue, I do. And even though you don't know what to do about the future, I do. And if you trust me, I'll give you the strength to face every step of every moment in the days ahead. I will be there with you. I hear this kind of statement over and over from people. It's this sense, sense, I guess, that my life is out of control. I wrote down different things I've heard over this last month and just different comments. I feel powerless to change the situation in my life. I feel powerless to break this bad habit that I know I have. I feel powerless to save this relationship. I feel powerless to get out of debt. I feel powerless to manage my time and my schedule. And so what you start seeing over and over is that people, you, me, we need a power that's greater than ourselves to keep making it. And so Paul writes in Ephesians 1.20, How incredibly great is his power to help those who believe in him. The same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. In other words, the same power that enabled Jesus to rise from the dead is the same power that's available to us today. Because he's the same God. He has the same power. The same power that rose Jesus 2,000 years ago could be in your life right now. Again, we don't know what the future holds, but we have a God who holds it in his hands. We have a God who promises he'll be with us every step. And he empowers us. And the last thing he says is simply this, that our future can now be secured. I think a lot of people try to get to heaven in different ways. I'll just give you some of them. Some people try salvation by sincerity. And you've heard it before. It says it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. But just, just for a moment, think about the logic in that. It doesn't make any sense. You could be sincerely wrong, can't you? I mean, I was reading about a guy this week, about a pilot who sincerely flew into a mountain. He thought it was lower, right? He killed himself. He was sincerely wrong. If I had some water up here and I could drink it believing that it's water, I can sincerely drink of it believing that it's water, but if it's poison, I'd still be sincerely dead. There's a lot of people who think as long as you're sincere about whatever belief you are, it, it must be true. I guess we live in this postmodern world that accepts all feelings as truth, but that's, that's not what Jesus says. It's not even objectively fair. It, it doesn't make any sense. And so it leads people a lot, down a lot of wrong paths. Other people try to think that you can get to heaven by service. If I just do enough things to put on my side of the ledger, God will look down and he'll say, you know, it's, it's good enough. But the problem is, is how do you know if it's good enough? And so we live in a state of unknown. We live in a state of constantly trying to do, always feeling guilty, always beating ourselves up for what we didn't do, always wondering, is it good enough? But the answer Scripture gives is it's never good enough. It's either 100% or it's nothing. But I think my favorite is salvation by comparison. I'm better than so-and-so. <laughs> I think we all could say, you're probably better than me. I have no doubt about that, right? But God isn't judging you and he isn't judging me by somebody else's standard. So me saying I'm better than Hitler is like me saying I can bench press more than my grandma. I mean, it just doesn't mean anything, right? God doesn't grade on a curve. Again, it's 100% or zero. It's 100% or Jesus says, or plan B. And Jesus says, I came to bring you plan B. And this is the way to eternal life. And I just want you to follow me. In other words, he knew we couldn't be perfect. And so he came so our imperfection could be hidden in his perfection. He came to bring us a real hope. He came to provide us a way to heaven. You see, that's the difference Easter can make if you let it.
And it's understanding that Easter signifies the rescuing of our souls from, from hell, which I think is the most significant. I think we don't like to say that word. I think we don't like to acknowledge that, that place. But, but that's why Easter is such a big deal. He robbed us from Satan and hell and he said, I'm going to take you to heaven now. It's the most amazing gift out of anything we've talked about. That we once were dead, but now we're found. That's not right. We once were lost, but now we're found, right? There we go. And I can't remember the rest of it, even though it's my favorite song. Okay, but, it, but it's seeing, it, back to this, it's seeing God's love in action. He sent us Jesus to take away our sin. And it's the feeling of peace that comes knowing now that all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. It's also this peace that comes in knowing that he's got our future in his hands. It's understanding that Jesus is not only the center point of history, but he also needs to be the center point of our lives. And if we get that, that's the difference that Easter can mean for us. And if we let that, it can change our lives forever. I'll just point you back to what the video said. The resurrection changes everything. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.